0: Right. Uh, we are in Hebrews 7. If you want to turn there, we are going to cover the whole chapter, all 28 verses. You ready? <laughs> it's a lot. But it all goes together, so we kind of have to cover all 28 verses, or we don't have to, but it makes sense too. Um, as most of you know, we, we go through books of the Bible. Um, and part of the reason we do that is because we we trust God to give us what we need. We know that God knows what we need more than we do. And so we come to Scripture not only looking for answers to our questions and our priorities, but we allow God to set our priorities and set our questions and to set us in a certain direction. Um, it's certainly tempting to approach preaching only asking what do we need what what do we what are our needs that God can meet what are our priorities that God can speak into but the danger there is that we set the agenda we set the priorities and we miss what God has to say um, in other areas so this is why we start with God's word now I bring that up today because if we weren't preaching through books of the Bible this chapter might be one that we would uh, think about skipping it's a bit obscure um, for modern readers, especially those newer to the church, it can be hard to see the relevance of this chapter. Why do we need to talk about priests, um, sacrifices, why do we need to talk about individuals who lived thousands of years ago with names like Melchizedek? Did anyone think about Melchizedek this week? Did that just pop into your mind and you're like, man, that's a really interesting name and story, I should think of more about that, but... God, in his word, even in this passage before us today, is giving us what we need. And specifically, he is showing us who he is and what kind of Savior Jesus is. He's showing us who he is and what kind of Savior Jesus is. So if you can keep that in mind, that big idea in mind as we go through this today, that will be of great help. This is not just an obscure history lesson. This is not about random Bible facts that you can quiz your friends with. This is about seeing the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you've been with us as we've been going through Hebrews, you know that that's what Hebrews is about. It's about the supremacy of Jesus. And one of the ways the author tries to help us see that is by showing how Jesus fulfills all of these offices and institutions and individuals from the Old Testament. So, for example, Jesus is a better king. He's a better priest, he's a better prophet, he's a better sacrifice, he's a better temple. All of the things that we read about in, these old, in the Old Testament, Jesus fulfills. They are shadows or types pointing forward to Jesus. And back in chapter 4, which is a, w- a little while ago now, but back in chapter 4, the author began to present Jesus as a better high priest. So he brought up this topic about high priest and Jesus as a better high priest. Now, he took a big pause in that discussion uh, to offer us some warnings. And we've been going through those the last three weeks. But here in chapter 7, he, continue, continue, he, he jumps back into that topic of Jesus as a better high priest. And that's going to be the topic of the next four chapters. And so really quickly, as we begin, before we get into this, it will just be necessary to ask, what is a high priest? Again, probably not the top of your mind this week. So a high priests in the Old Testament represented God to the people and the people to God. He was a mediator, an intercessor, a go-between, between God and his people. And as part of that role, a big part of that role was to offer sacrifices for the people before the presence of God. For sinful people to enter into the presence of the Holy God and to have a relationship with the Holy God, something had to be done. They had to do that through or with the help of priests and sacrifices in the temple that god had set up so in brief that's what a high priest does so with that let's jump in the very end of chapter six introduces the topic of chapter seven we are told that jesus became a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek and this is simply picking up what was said back in a few chapters ago before this warning And then chapter 7 jumps in to explain what this means. Verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is King of Peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There you go. What is this about? Well, the, the only account and the very short account of Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14, very early in our Bibles. Very early in biblical history, during the time of Abram, before God had changed his name to Abraham. There was no people of Israel yet. There was no slavery in Egypt. There was no law, Ten Commandments, no temple. None of this stuff yet. It was very early. And so in Genesis 14, there's a war between a bunch of kings. And the victorious kings take prisoners uh, from their battle, from the losing side. They take their pri- the, all these prisoners and possessions with them, and among the prisoners is a guy named Job. Sorry, not Job. He's a guy named Lot, who is Abraham's nephew. Abraham hears of these events and takes, it says, 318 of his trained men and goes to rescue Lot. Abraham goes with these men, and he attacks by night these victorious kings, and he's able to rescue Lot along with the rest of the people and possessions that were taken. On Abraham's return back to his land, one of the kings who was originally defeated comes to meet him. He's wanting his stuff back, basically. But along with that king is this mysterious figure who is previously unmentioned in Scripture, who we know very little about. But here's what we're told, and and it's quite fascinating. So in, in Genesis 14, we read, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High, and he blessed him, This Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now, we know that Hebrews is, is attempting to use this figure, is using this figure of Melchizedek to help us understand Jesus. And it's not hard to see some of the similarities there, right? So this Melchizedek, we are told, is King of Salem. And the word Salem comes from the same root word as the word peace or shalom. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Melchizedek, his name literally means King of Righteousness. Jesus, again, lived a perfectly righteous life, called us to righteousness, and promises to bring about an eternal kingdom where righteousness dwells. And so we have this king who could be said to be a king of righteousness and king of peace, but he's also a priest. He's a priest of the God Most High. And so he rules, but he also intercedes, represents God to man. And then it says, very interestingly, that he brings out bread and wine. Now this, of course, at this time, had no connection to communion that Jesus instituted many years later, but it's just another mysterious way that he foreshadows or points forward to Jesus. And that's all we know about Melchizedek. Those are all the details of his life that we have. We know nothing of his lineage, his family, how he became a priest. We don't even know how he knows at this point in history about God most high, about Yahweh. Now, he surely had a family in geo- genealogy. Hebrews is just saying that scripturally speaking, As we look through the the written scriptures, we know nothing of his family. They're non-existent. And so he appears to be kind of like Jesus in that he is a forever priest. The only other time that this individual shows us in scripture before Hebrews is in Psalm 110. And this is one of the most quoted Old Testament texts in the New Testament. It's what much of Hebrews is based off of. Uh, Hebrews quotes Psalm 110 at least nine times. Psalm 110 is a royal psalm about a king who reigns over the earth, who sits at the right hand of God and ultimately points forward to Jesus. And so in the midst of Psalm Psalm 110, we get this line, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you were a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So again, Psalm 110 is pointing forward uh, to this great king who will rule over all of the earth and sits at the right hand of God and it compares him to be like a priest after the order of Melchizedek. A priesthood that in some sense resembles this mysterious Melchizedek. Now if you're confused, you're not alone. We don't have very much to work from here. Maybe at the least you think, well, that's kind of interesting. What does that mean? Well, what God is doing throughout the Old Testament is dropping hints about what is to come, about what he is going to do. He's not trying to be deceptive, but he's beginning to slowly reveal what he is doing, his grand and eternal purpose over all of history. And so he gives prophecies. He brings about certain figures like this Melchizedek. He sets up, Institutions and systems like the priests and the sacrifices and the temple that begin to teach the people who he is and what he is doing and how they can have a relationship with him. This is is actually how Jesus himself teaches us to read the Old Testament. Um, After his resurrection, he's talking with a couple men in Luke 24, and he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets that's one way of referring to a section of the Old Testament, have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, so that's shorthand just for the Old Testament scriptures, Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so the author of Hebrews Knowing that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. That Jesus is what God has been preparing for and working towards and revealing through various ways for thousands of years. And that Jesus is the center and the hope and salvation of mankind. God's plan for the world. The author looks back through the scriptures to try to put these pieces together. And so he looks at Genesis 14. reads about Melchizedek. He looks at Psalm 110. Again, Melchizedek shows up. He considers the life and teaching and, and death and resurrection of Jesus. And through the inspiration of the Spirit, he shows us what it all means. Melchizedek is a teaching tool for understanding Jesus. Melchizedek is a lens through which we can better understand the person and work of Jesus. And that's what the rest of this chapter unpacks. So we're going to read through the rest of this chapter. It's a lot. I'll give some comments here and there just to try to explain what what is going on. And then we'll um, unpack a few uh, things at the end. So picking up at verse 4, Hebrews 7, 4. See if you can follow the connections, the comparisons that are being made here. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, so Abraham is the great and respected patriarch of Israel. Everyone looked back on. Abraham, the, Abraham the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office. So Levi was one of the 12 sons of Israel, the great, one of the great grandsons of Abraham. and Levi's descendants were where the priests came from. They have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, Melchizedek is superior because he blesses Abraham. Verse 8, In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, But in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives, at least we have no record of his death or lineage. Verse 9, one might even say that Levi himself, Abraham's great-grandson, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So in other words, Melchizedek is a picture of a priest-king who is greater than Abraham, and because of that, is greater than the whole system of priests and sacrifices that came through Abraham. But this isn't ultimately about Melchizedek. The point is that Jesus, as a priest, in his priestly work to atone for sins, cleanse us of our sin and guilt, and bring us to God the Father, is greater, better, more effective than the Old Testament priests. Jesus is not simply one in the long line of priests, just another one of them who serves for a while and then dies. No, he is more like Melchizedek who serves forever as a priest and fulfills this promise of a priest like Melchizedek. Going on. Verse 11. Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? So Aaron is the ancestor of the high priests. All the priests are Levites, but Aaron is the ancestor of the high priests. And so in other words, why does God through Psalm 110 speak of a different kind of priests than the ones currently serving during the time of the Psalms being written at that time? Well, because that priesthood was temporary. That was pointing forward to, preparing for what Jesus would do. Verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken, that is, Jesus, belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord descended from Judah, Levi's brother, And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, like the other priests, but by the power of an undestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, and here Psalm 110 is quoted, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Now, pause there real quick. Jesus is this better hope, to be clear. A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So if the laws and sacrifices of the Old Testament and our or humanity's obedience to them, had actually made people righteous, had actually atoned for sin and given people the power to live righteously and reconciled humanity to God, there would be no need for Jesus. But that's not the case. God's purpose was not fulfilled completely through the law and through the sacrifices it required. Rather, it was a teaching tool to prepare us for Jesus, the better priest, the better sacrifice, the better temple. Verse 20. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one whom said to him, again, Psalm 110, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Whew. It's a lot. That has a lot of uh, piecing things together and reasoning and argumentation and putting it all together. But now we see the point. Uh, well, now we get to the point of it all. Now we get to why this all matters. Again, this isn't mere history. This isn't about learning to read our Bibles alone, although that's there, that's important. This is ultimately, ultimately about seeing who God is And seeing Jesus, the Son of God, for the Savior that he is. What kind of Savior is Jesus? Last section, starting in verse 23, the author begins to, he makes these connections and comparisons clear. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. So there had to be a lot of them because they kept dying. They were human. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus is a forever priest, a permanent priest, a once and for all priest. Consequently, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, which was God's design from the beginning, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you notice the repetition, permanently, forever, to the uttermost, always? Do you get the idea that is being put forward of what kind of priest and therefore Savior Jesus is? Last paragraph, verse 26, For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those, other, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, Psalm 110, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So the question is, who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you if you have drawn near to God through him? And one way that the Bible answers that question is that he's a priest. He's like the high priests. He's a mediator, an intercessor, a go-between between God the Father, the creator and sustainer of the world, and you. He brings you to the Father and brings the Father to you. He does all that is necessary to overcome every hindrance and distance and enmity that exists between you and God the Father because of your sin and my sin and God's holiness. You can think about when there's conflict between or enmity, division between two human beings. Uh, a, a mediator is often brought in, right, to to attempt to bring peace and love and fellowship and harmony back to the relationship. This is often difficult to do between two humans, but Jesus does this Perfectly and completely between us and God, and the way that He does this, we are told there, is that He offered up Himself. Again, this is giving us language. Jesus is not only a perfect High Priest; He is also a perfect sacrifice. He doesn't come offering the the, the blood of an animal, but His own blood, His own life. He lays down Himself. As the perfect and better sacrifice for our sin and guilt. Sin leads to death. And if, our, if we are not going to die, but if our sin is going to be atoned for and our guilt cleansed, a death must occur. That's what God was teaching his people through this Old Testament s- sacrificial system. He was teaching them that various things, but one was that sin leads to death. Sin is, is such a big deal, rebelling against God, that it leads to death. But he was also teaching that I am the kind of God that's going to provide a way for you to be reconciled to me. There was, God was showing his own grace in that system. But that whole system was only pointing forward to a greater death, which would once and for all atone for the sins of the world. That system was a shadow pointing forward to the greatest display of God's grace that would come in Jesus. And so Jesus isn't merely a great teacher who points us to the way of salvation. He doesn't merely give us advice and say, do this and that, and then you will be good. Jesus himself is our Savior, who offers as a priest a sacrifice, his own body, his own life, to cleanse us from sin and to bring us to God. The way that the the scriptures often put this is, is in the simple phrase, salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is something God does for you. Look to Jesus alone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is salvation in no, one, no other name. Salvation is of the Lord, which he accomplishes through Jesus. But there's more here. Even now, we are told that Jesus is continuing to act on our behalf. He always lives to make intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us. So intercession, to intercede is to go between two parties and to plead or appeal for one party. Jesus is our intercessor before God the Father, pleading on our behalf. Now, we need to be careful about how we think about this. We might think that God the Father kind of needs his arm twisting. No, that's not how this works. Clearly, God the Father, there was no division in the Trinity over this plan of salvation. It was the joy of God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit to enact this plan of salvation. Intercession, rather, points us to the ongoing reality and sufficiency of what was done on the cross, and it points us to the ongoing affection and heart of God for us. It reminds us that the joy that sent Jesus to the cross is still the joy of the f- God the Father towards his people. Intercession is the minute-by-minute announcement in heaven through the loudspeakers in heaven, this is my beloved Son bought with the precious blood of Jesus. There's no possibility that God forgets that or moves on from that. Jesus is always living to make intercession for us, always fighting for us, even in our sin. He is fighting against our sin, but for us. He's not against us. Uh, in, in the book Gentle and Lowly, uh, Dane Ortland has a chapter on this, this phrase um, from this passage here um, titled To the Uttermost. I encourage you to read that chapter and, and the one after it, which is similar about Jesus being an advocate. Uh, but there in, in that chapter, he says, intercession applies what the atonement accomplished. So atonement being what Jesus, what ac- was accomplished on the cross. Jesus dying for our sins in place of our sins. Christ's present heavenly intercession on our behalf is a reflection of the fullness and victory and completeness of his earthly work. Not a reflection of anything lacking in his earthly work. The atonement accomplished our salvation. Intercession is the moment-by-moment application of that atoning work. The constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven so when we are told that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, um, uttermost means completely, comprehensively, exhaustively, all the way to the end. Um, Ortland elsewhere says that we are, ut- we are to the uttermost sinners. We need a to the uttermost savior. In other words, there's not one small pocket of our sin or sinful desires or guilt that he is not able to wipe clean and save you from. Or there is not one area of your life where you are on your own, where you, where it is up to you to cleanse yourself, to make yourself presentable to God, and then he'll save you. There's no sin that his blood-bought grace is not sufficient to cover. There's no sin that his compassionate heart is unwilling to cover and forgive. No sinner is too far gone for his embrace. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He saves all the way, all the way in a depth sense, all the way to the innermost parts of you, and all the way in a time sense, all the way to the end, even as you continue to struggle And battle with sin. Jesus never ceases to intercede for us, that is apply the benefits of his saving work to you. So the question again is, do you see the kind of Savior that Jesus is? Do you see the sufficiency of his salvation? And do you see that there's nothing you can add to your salvation, but that he does it completely? to the uttermost. Yes, we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We must grow up in the grace and knowledge of God. His salvation in us does bear good fruit, but it is His salvation. He saves us completely. His heart is turned towards us in affection and mercy and love every day and not because of anything we do. So how can we know that this is true of us? How can we have this hope? Well, twice in, in there, it speaks of drawing near to him. He's able to save to the other most those who draw near to God through him. Also back in 19, through which we, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. Have you drawn near to God through Jesus? This is not, It does not say that we can draw near to God however we please. That God is whoever we make him out to be and and we can just come to him. No, we must come through Jesus. Through the sufficiency and supremacy of what God has done in Jesus, his death and resurrection. We must come to God, clinging to, trusting in, leaning on Jesus alone. Not on ourself. Not on any goodness or merits that we think we have. Not on any track record. Not on a mistaken belief that the God God will just understand. God grades on a curve and hopefully we we pass. No. We must look to the cross and behold Jesus who died and have the confidence to come into the presence of the Father. And if you have done that, you have this hope. Rejoice in this hope. Rest in this hope that this is. God is to you. Not only what he did for you in the past, but right now, you have the hope that Jesus is interceding for you. Constantly living to make intercession for you. Saving you to the uttermost. To the depths of who you are. To the end of time. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help us to rejoice in these truths. I I know that we can tend to perhaps focus almost exclusively on what you've done for us in the past. And that's important, and that's the foundation of all of this. But help us to mind that the depths of this truth that you are right now interceding for us, advocating for us, as, as John writes in 1 John, that even when we sin, we have an advocate. Not when we don't sin, but even when we sin, we have an advocate that you are with us and for us. And let this make us quick to, to draw near to you, to turn to you um, in our sin and our suffering at all times. We pray this in your name. Amen. Well, as we take communion now, um, communion is a, a reminder, among other things, that what we are talking about here is something real and tangible. Something as real and tangible as these communion elements. We are, I know that was a, a lengthy chapter, but we are not merely talking about ideas here or opinions. We are talking about a creator God accomplishing his plan of salvation and applying it to us through Jesus. And we didn't have a lot of time to spend on that word, but fitting. said, told us that Jesus is a fitting priest, a fitting Savior. Our salvation is a fitting. That means it is perfect. It is exactly what we need. Let's take communion together.